Would you please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> As you know, this letter of Paul to the Corinthians was written to correct a number of serious abuses that were happening in the church of Corinth. One of the abuses pertain to matters regarding the observance of the Lord's Supper. They were somehow partaking of the Supper in an unworthy manner. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the Apostle Paul brings them back to the original institution of the Supper, much like what Jesus did when he was asked regarding the matter of divorce, Shall a man divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus said from the beginning it was not so. Even though there were corruptions that had taken place, that's not, that was not God's intention from the beginning. And so now he takes them back to show the true nature of the supper, that it's a supper of remembrance. Uh, that's the primary purpose of the Lord's Supper. It's a memorial. <clears throat> I know Many Reformed men and women speak of uh, the supper as more than a mere memorial. But I would argue, what's mere about a memorial when it's a memorial of the Lord Jesus Christ and His death? His design is to keep our minds focused on certain fundamentals about the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. What I want us to point out here is from chapter 11 and verse 26, where, where the Apostle Paul said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, it's first of all a memorial. It's bringing your mind to remembrance, but you're remembering by way of proclamation. Uh, what is a proclamation? I know some translations read, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. I, I don't like that as much as a proclamation. You, are, you proclaim the Lord's death because the idea of showing forth can leave the idea of a kind of a passion play that we're uh, miming the Lord's death in some way. But it's not that at all. The verb proclaim means to make known or to preach or declare something. Uh, it's most often used with reference to the preaching of the gospel. When Paul came to Mars Hill in the book of Acts, chapter 17, and he's passing through and he considered the objects of worship, he said, Therefore, uh, the one whom you worship without knowing, I proclaim to you. Proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, then he goes on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, he said, I did not come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. His idea of declaring or proclaiming. Uh, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he said, even so the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. The same word. The idea of proclamation. So, the Lord's Supper is indeed a proclamation. Now, it's a 
first of all, a, a personal proclamation. And notice he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, you don't see it in this translation, but that's actually the plural for you. Uh, because he's addressing the whole church. That when the church comes together, they are proclaiming something. The church is proclaiming. As individuals we are, but also as a church coming together, we proclaim it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, about coming together. Uh, but he, he's telling us that we are proclaiming. Now, not everyone in the church uh, has the gift of teaching or preaching, but... Every member of the church is to proclaim the Lord's Supper. When we observe it, that's what we're doing. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim. That is, you who eat and you who drink are the ones doing the proclaiming of His death. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they actually withhold the cup from the communicants. And this would be an argument against that. It's not the... It's not the priest up there proclaiming, but it's the church is to do the proclaiming in this way. Uh, some churches have other symbolic ceremonies that others just watch as observers. But the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. It's a ceremony in which all of God's people are called upon to be participants. And here, is, as someone said, the very poorest among the communicants will be a preacher. The lowest, the youngest, those who are doing it are proclaiming. So it's a personal proclamation. But furthermore, it's a public proclamation. When do we proclaim the Lord's death? It's when we eat and drink, when we observe the supper together. When do we do that? Well, it's when we come together. Uh, the Lord's Supper is not something that's to be done privately in your home or in your closet. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet and shut the door. But that's not the directives for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is when the church comes together. In the earlier uh, chapter, he mentions this about coming together as a church. The church is the ones who are called out of the world and they are called to come together. One member doesn't make a church. But here we're to do it when the church is meeting together for worship. Uh, but the idea of pro uh, proclamation is something that is open. It's a public thing. Uh, someone said that perhaps we should put the words over the communion table not for private consumption. It's something that should be for everyone to do when we've come together. Uh, it's something we proclaim together. So it's public. But when we look at the matter in which they proclaim, he said we proclaim the Lord's death. It's the Lord's death. The Lord's left us two ordinances. You think of the, the importance of this. He's only left the church with two ordinances, but they both center upon what? They center upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, baptism focuses on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, as well as the believer's death, burial, and resurrection in Him. But the Lord's Supper focuses upon His death. As, as important as the birth of Christ and the 
life of Christ uh, were, the death of Christ is even more important. The death of Christ is central to the Christian faith. In fact, his birth and life mean nothing apart from his death. It's his death that seals it all. Charles Spurgeon spoke of uh, certain preachers who would say that we dwell too much upon the death of Christ. Uh, they say, why don't we talk more about his life? The, the death of a man, they say, is not so important, uh, but a great many degrees as his life. His life is more important. And certainly the life of Christ is important. We sang about his life and what he did for others and, and all. But his death is at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you leave that out, you really no longer have true Christianity. It's not about looking at him as an example, though he is. It's more important his death. Because we know his death was not the death of a martyr. It was not an ordinary death. His death was substitutionary. Uh, and that's included in the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. And you think about doing something for someone else, you're doing it in their place. So they don't have to. Uh, you know, if, a, if a, a child goes to a parent and says, let me clean up the house for you, <clears throat> well, then they don't, the parent supposedly doesn't have to clean up the house if the child does this. Now, we know that doesn't always work that way. But if you're doing something for someone, that means they don't have to do it. Well, Jesus died for us so that we don't have to die the death that He died. That is the death of punishment for sin. His death was just that. It was an atonement for sin. Jesus said, For this is My blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That's how He paid the price for our sins. Our sins deserved punishment. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. Sin brings guilt and condemnation and ultimately God's wrath. It separates the person from God. It bars that person from heaven and from communion with God. The wages of sin is death. That's what Christ did. He died that kind of death, an atonement for sin. He came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. And so his death is central in the purposes of God sending his son into the world. That he would be a, a he would die a substitutionary death, an atoning death that would secure the redemption of his people. His redemption or our redemption was secured by his death. So he died so that we might not die eternally. We die physically, but that death is the death, uh, the sting of death has been taken away because of Christ. Death for the Christian, even though it is still unnatural, it is not ushering him into the condemnation of God, but it's ushering the Christian into the very presence of God. <clears throat> Paul said he wasn't afraid to die. He said, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death for the Christian is just ushering that person into the presence of God. Not for judgment, but for salvation. But then I want to notice furthermore, 
<clears throat> to whom is this a proclamation? Who are we proclaiming his death to? Well, we're proclaiming it, first of all, to ourselves. The cross must always be kept before the mind of a Christian. Whatever else we may forget in Christianity, we should never forget or lose sight of the death of Jesus Christ. With all of its significance and all of its application, we must never forget that He died for us. Uh, from time to time, people will ask me a particular question, a theological question. Uh, sometimes I haven't studied it for a long time, maybe years. And I have to say, well, let me read up on it. And I'm a little rusty on that one. But that should never be so about the death of Christ. We should never get rusty about that. That should always be crystal clear in our thinking. And never let it be said that we have uh, done this with the cross. That's why Christ gave us this ordinance. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And in particular, remembrance of my atoning death. This is my blood shed for you. That's why He gave us the ordinance. So we must proclaim it to ourselves. We are the ones. Individually, we need His atoning death. We need saving. We cannot save ourselves. Our good works can never save us. We need it. The, the most advanced Christian, the most mature Christian, the most godly Christian needs to be saved through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's never saved on the basis of His goodness. Never saved on the basis of His godliness. Never saved on the basis of His sorrow or His repentance. It's always because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did our sins nail Him to the cross, but that very cross is our only hope of salvation. Because Christ died on the cross, which this pictures for us, we are saved. So we proclaim it to ourselves as our only hope of peace with God and comfort and hope of forgiveness. It's found right here at the cross of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, Oh, my brethren and sisters in Christ, I pray you to see that it is, uh, that you see to it that you now show his death to your own conscience. Does it accuse you? Then show it the wounds of Christ, and it shall be well with you. Does the law condemn you? Show it your bleeding master, and it will at once absolve you. Show Christ's death to your unbelief, and surely it will vanish away. Show Christ's death to your heart, and surely it must melt with love to Him. Show Christ's death to the weeping eyes of your repentance, and the tears shall be wiped away, and you shall see your pardon bought with the blood. Show Christ's death to the weak, Leah-like eyes of your faith, and it shall strengthen them till they shall see even the hidden mystery and discern the substance which by mortal eyes cannot be seen. Show Christ's death to your wretched and miserable spirit that's been troubled and burdened with the cares of this world, and it must leap for joy and cast all its burdens away. Show the death of Christ to your old sins which have been coming back to you today, and it will drive them away. Go back to the cross 
Are you struggling with guilt? This is where you need to find relief from that guilt. You might think, well, if I just turn over a new leaf, if I, if I become more committed, if I do that, then it will drive my guilt away. No, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what He did that can drive away your guilt. If Satan comes and accuses you, he's called the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses you often justly because you're so weak or you've sinned again, done the same thing again. This is the answer to the accuser of the brethren. Show him what Christ has done. Agree with him. Yes, I have sinned, but Christ has died. So we proclaim it to ourselves. We proclaim it to ourselves to remind us also that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. Christian, do you ever begin to think about what you want and what you're going to do? Remember that you are a blood-bought child of God. You are no longer your own, Paul says. But you have been bought with a price. And that price is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. Peter said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says the love of Christ compels us. This is what drives and motivates us to live for Him because we judge that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. You ever begin to feel that, that selfish tendency again what you want to do, what you're, what will benefit you the most, then you know you're living for yourself again. And you must remember that you are not your own. You're not to live for yourself, but you're to live for Him who died and rose again on your behalf. So, this is a proclamation to ourselves when we come to the Lord's table. This is why it's so beneficial. We don't always dwell on this much of the Lord's death and what He has done for us in, in every sermon or every Sunday, but this gives us that one time in the month that we can dwell specifically upon this. But also, it's a proclamation to others. And here it is a very precious proclamation because we're proclaiming one another to one another. We're to, to stir one another up. Uh, that's why... Uh, the writer of Hebrews says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but, uh, but all the more we're to come together to stir one another up to love and to good works. And so here, when we are proclaiming his death, we're stirring one another up. Again, quoting Spurgeon, he said, Oh, hear you the tale, and then as you come to the table, remember what it is you set forth and say to yourself, I am by this action telling a story more wonderful than all the histories of men put together. I am showing to those who look on something which angels desire to look into, which is the most wonderful intelligence will throughout all the ages study with ever-growing wonder and delight. God incarnate, suffering in the sinner's stead. Show that forth, brethren, for it is worth the showing. I come across reels every now and then of, of Billy Graham. And one of the things he's 
spoke of was the, the gospel is the greatest story ever told. That's what we are proclaiming. And we're proclaiming it to one another. <coughs> and we're proclaiming it not only to our brethren, but even to the lost among us. To our children and those who may not have come to Christ yet. That this is my only hope of salvation. This is, this is what I'm counting on. To reconcile me to God and bring me to heaven. So we proclaim it to others. But furthermore, if you look at the passage, we see that it is a perpetual proclamation. He says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Think of that. Till Jesus comes. That tells us that this is to be perpetual. How long are we to proclaim this? Until Christ comes again. Uh, this perpetual, we have this perpetual need to have this brought to us, but it can never be dispensed with. We should never say, well, we're just going to stop having the Lord's Supper. Uh, maybe people are losing interest or something, or it's old-fashioned, out of date, obsolete. No. This is for the church throughout all the ages. Till He comes. And besides, there's a perpetual need for the Lord's Supper. Uh, Spurgeon said, Beloved, this ordinance is to be perpetual because Christian hearts will always need it. We need to feast upon this. These truths of what Christ has done for us. Spurgeon goes on to say, Christ knew that we should never in this life be able to do without outward ordinances. He knew that His people would be forgetful, even of Himself. So he gave us this double forget-me-not, this sweet memorial of his death, that as often as we observe it, we may observe it in remembrance of him. So it is to be perpetual. But when we come thinking of it, we do it till he comes, that also ought to create an anticipation, an anticipation of Christ coming again. We're to be like the Thessalonians who turn to God from idols to wait for His Son from heaven. To wait for Jesus. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He said, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that's after His coming. That's when He'll drink it anew with us, He says. And so, we should... Come to the table with anticipation of His second coming. It should cause us to look forward to His coming again. But not only anticipation, it should create an appreciation when we think of doing this until He comes. When we think of the second coming of Christ, we should remember the twofold purpose of His coming. And I spoke of that somewhat this morning. But there's a twofold purpose of Christ coming again. It's not only to bring salvation to the elect. Certainly for that, we should have great appreciation that He's coming to save us and to rescue us. He's the one who delivers us, but He delivers us from what? The wrath to come. The wrath to come. He that's the second purpose of His coming. Not only to bring salvation to His elect, but to bring judgment and damnation upon the impenitent. 
upon those who refuse to believe that Christ is coming again. And that will cause a great appreciation. I, I love that hymn by Robert Murray McShane when he, he looks forward to the judgment of Christ. And he says, when this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun? When we stand with Christ in glory, looking over life's finished story, then, Lord, shall we fully know, not till then, how much we owe. Then he has in the next verse, when I hear the wicked call on rocks and hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. So you think of this, that the, the coming of Christ is going to bring damnation upon the wicked. That ought to fill you with an amount of terror, but not for yourselves, but for them. But it should fill you with appreciation that this is what Christ has redeemed us from. We do this till He comes. When He comes, He's going to bring judgment upon the wicked. We think of that judgment. We can only imagine faintly what that will be like. And that's why McShane said, not till then will I know how much I owe. But we can still have some measure and an increasing measure of appreciation when we think of the judgment that He'll send upon the wicked. But also, this little phrase, till He comes, it should show us that His death, His blood, has never lost one ounce of efficacy. It's been 2,000 years, and this has been showing and proclaiming the Lord's death all the way through. It's not lost one ounce of efficacy. It also, as Spurgeon said, another thing I learned from this text is that if this supper is to be celebrated till He come, it shows us that there will always be a church of Christ to celebrate it. Again, how would Christ know, except He is God, that this would be celebrated till He comes? It would be observed until He comes. 2,000 years later, who would be around to observe it 2,000 years from now? If you created some society or something, and you said, now in 2,000 years, this society is going to be doing this, and it's going to be accomplishing that. Well, you would... You couldn't know anything like that because 2,000 years, almost nothing continues. But the church of Christ continues on. There's going to be a church. It ought to cause great encouragement. It ought to cause you to wonder at the Lord's great power in sustaining the church throughout all of these ages, through the persecutions, through the trials, through the times of ease and all of that the church is still around to observe the Lord's Supper. And this is a miracle in itself that here we are, but not only us, but congregations all over the world who are observing the Lord's Supper because Christ said, do this till I come. Till I come. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I as vile as he Wash all my sins away. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. This is an amazing thing. This supper of remembrance, remembering His death 
an atoning death, a substitutionary death, still saves sinners. And it welcomes all sinners to come. You think, can He save me? He's been saving people for 2,000 years. He can save you too. It will never lose its power. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a Savior. What an amazing thing. That's why Paul said, I forbid me that I preach nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my theme. That should be our theme. And this is what Christ wants us to remember again and again and again till He comes again. May He find us doing that all the way till He comes again in glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we 